This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington on August 21st, 2016. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. You can open up to Genesis 22 where you go straight through books of the Bible. We're in Genesis and we are in chapter 22 today. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read the whole thing to you. should be on the screen though. Genesis chapter 22 verse 1 says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering, as one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but... Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Camul the father of Aram, Kesed, Hezo, Pildash, Jiplaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah, which is very important. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and moreover his concubine, whose name was Rumah, or Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Meachah. This is God's Word. Now, similar to some other chapters in Genesis, Genesis 22 starts off with a little ambiguity, and it just says, after these things. So, a time period has passed. We're not really sure what's happened. What happened prior to this chapter, though, in the narrative, was that Abraham had made a commitment or a covenant with a man named Abimelech. And Abimelech's really the king of this city-state or this area in which 
Abraham is living. And they enter into what can be described as somewhat of a lifelong commitment. And it's a covenant. And Abraham and his family will dwell in the land or the, the area, if you will, that Abimelech rules for many years and will be somewhat under his authority as he lives in his land. But through making a covenant, Abimelech and Abraham established kind of the terms of this relationship. Covenant's a very unique relationship. It's a very unique kind of contract or agreement. They're not merely going to tolerate one another or put up with one another or not bother one another. They're actually going to trust one another. And this kind of relationship, the covenant relationship, we have a marriage covenant, a membership covenant, but this kind of covenant is is a relationship that's more intimate than like a legal contract, but it's also more binding than just a simple friendship. And this is why he confirmed the covenant with this blood oath, and it's a very important relationship and a lifelong commitment that Abraham is making. And to mark that commitment, he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, where he is going to live. And the tree is, but not only, a memorial to this covenant, this agreement that they have made. It's a tree that will grow very large, 40, 50 feet, uh, and it will provide shade and all these things, and it's a marker, but it's, it's also a symbol of Abraham's commitment. And it's a marker of his residence in this place, in this land. He is saying in many ways that he is ready to trust God's Word, to hope in God's promises in this place, in this land, and to do so despite what he might see or hear or even feel in the future, which has had a tendency to get him in trouble at times as he trusted those things. He knows that despite his unfaithfulness, and the experience with Abimelech is a great example of this, despite the fact that he makes the same exact mistake over and over again, God has proven himself time and time again faithful. I'm going to love you even though you're a major screw-up. And so he plants this tree and says, that's it. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to plant deep roots here. I am done moving. There are many places in Canaan that Abraham could live. He was not told to live in Beersheba, but he says, I'm going to plant in this city, in this place. I'm done moving. I'm planting firmly my family here and we will live here, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter like what I might experience or, or wonder, I'm going to plant and stay. And last night we had a meeting with many of our leaders, and I was just encouraged by the number of people for many years, since even the early days of Damascus Road, who have stayed through peaks and valleys, through deserts and, and through flowing rivers, like they planted roots and they have stayed in this place. But as Abraham plants his commitment tree, God then tests him. He tests his commitment, if you will. All right, you planted a tree here. Let's see if you really mean perhaps what you say. He calls out to Abraham, and for the first of three times in this chapter, Abraham responds with this phrase of, Here am I. Here am I. I always love to note things that are repeated because they're usually important. I was dialoguing with this with my family 
uh, just like, okay, this is what dad's going to preach, and what do you think? And I asked my oldest son, hey, so what do you think that means? Why, is, why does Abraham say that so many times and so often? I don't know. You know, that's typically what the answer is. I don't know, dad. So, well, come on, guess. What if you did know? What would you think, right? Like, well, I don't know. And I said, well, what if as your father, every time you said, hey, dad, I was right there. Here I am. Hey, dad, here I am. Hey, dad, here I am. He's like, you wouldn't be like that. I know, but hypothetically, <laughs> if that happened, right? These are the same words that Moses uses when the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush. Moses. Here am I. Even to Samuel. Here am I, as the Lord called out. And Abraham's not slow to respond, right? He's not, he's not irritated like maybe some people, what? what? What do you want? What now? Planted a tree, I've been here. This is the response, I believe, of a humble man. A man who has learned much from ignoring God's Word. Has learned much from making lots of mistakes of not listening to God. And he's not going to make that mistake again. The voice of God, the Word of God, has become a delight to Abraham. And when God calls, Abraham is ready to listen. He is eager to hear what he wants him to do. What he is going to say. And I I wonder sometimes, and I include myself in this, if that's how we view God's Word. If we wonder, what does God say about this situation? We get in a difficulty. We get in a, a circumstance. And as our thoughts delight, I wonder what God says. God, what would you have me do here? Or are we more tempted to, to depend on ourselves and just kind of go, oh, let me figure this out. Give me some time. Or are we just listening? Lord, what, what would you do? What would you say? How would you lead me? He's listening. He's ready to listen. And the, the test comes in a, a form of a command. And it's one that he never expected to hear. And it literally says, like, he tested Abraham. And I don't know if that's difficult for you. It should be emotionally weird, like, God tests people? That, that feels, ugh. But we have to understand that God's tests are not like our own tests. God is omniscient. God's all-knowing. God, God sees everything past, present, and future. He's not testing in order to discover what he doesn't already know. It was the evangelist Billy Graham who once said, God doesn't test us because He doesn't know how strong we are. He tests us because we do not know how strong we are. It's not that God doesn't know what's in our heart. We don't always know what's in our heart. The tests of God are not given for the purpose of discovery or evaluation. Hmm, let's see how He does. I wonder if He'll fail this. I wonder if He'll succeed this. Ha ha, I knew you wouldn't. You weren't good enough. That's not what God's tests are. God's tests are not to, to, for the purpose of evaluation. They're for the purpose of maturation. That's what James tells us, right? In the first chapter of James, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, trial, test, uh-oh, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness, implying you can resist that. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The tests of God, whether they come through suffering, success, 
sacrifice of some kind. They're designed to produce something in us that's not there, to complete something in us, to perfect and strengthen something in us. And that's what's happening here to Abraham. I'm convinced that faith does not grow apart from sacrifice. Apart from difficulty. In fact, I would argue that it's only through the difficult tests, the ones that cost us, the ones that that disrupt our comfort, the ones that impact our family, that change our calendar. It is through these kinds of difficult tests that we experience the fullness of faith. Easy tests require easy obedience and little faith, right? Those are the things that that when we map it out, we go, oh, that makes sense. When we're asked to give, we're like, well, I have that. That's easy. I have space in my calendar. That works. I'm already agreeing with that command, Lord, so no problem. We don't struggle with easy obediences, the easy tests. Those aren't even tests. We struggle with the difficult tests because they require difficult obediences. Difficult obediences cause us to pause. They they work themselves out over time. They require significant sacrifice. And even difficult obediences are those ones that are so costly that they are going to affect others. That it's not just this individual thing, well, I can obey and it won't impact anybody else, so I'll do that even though it's hard. It's if I do this, this is going to impact my spouse. It's going to impact my family. It's going to impact my community, my neighbors. That's a difficult obedience. But I believe faith doesn't grow apart from such things. And God asked Abraham to do the unimaginable. And it's it's just as unimaginable for him and and, and scary for him as it would be for us to, to sacrifice your son, your child, whom you love, right? I have three boys. And for me to even consider that, it's like, no, 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 I'll die, I'll die, I'll die. Take me. That's much easier. It's difficult to deliver someone. He asks him to make, I think, is the greatest sacrifice. Tells Abraham, take your son, your only son. And Abraham knows that. It feels like, Right? Maybe a little cruel statement. But I think in many ways, God says that. He adds that part, your only son, because He wants Abraham to know, I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. I know this is the son that I promised and that He didn't come for 24 years. I know this is the son whom I said, there's going to be from Him a great nation that will bless the world. I know that. This is your only son. Take your only son and sacrifice him. And for the first time, you know what you have? Maybe you've had this experience, maybe not. You have Abraham confronted with what feels like a conflict between God's command and God's promise. Ever had that experience, right? Wow, God says I'm to do this, but but He's promised this. How's that going to work out? I mean, I'm supposed to supposed to give this, I'm supposed to, to do this, um, but man, this experience is, he promises blessing over here? How does that bring blessing? I, I don't get it. 
Abraham is understandably confused because of this conflict. But the truth is, as you look at Abraham's life, you look at the journey he's gotten to this place where he's making mistake after mistake, trusting in his own eyes and his own ears and, and what he feels. He had trusted himself many times above God's Word. God had said things and made promises like, yeah, okay. And he has seen that that never works out well. When when he hears God's word, he goes, yeah, but you said this. Let me help you out. That's never worked out well for Abraham. And so this time, Abraham does differently. In truth, throughout Abraham's life, we see that God gives many directions, but he doesn't often give destinations. I believe it's Tim Keller, but I don't remember. I heard it somewhere. But he observed that as you look at Abraham's life, you kind of realize that God only tells Abraham enough information to take the next step. He doesn't tell him the long-term plans. And this is every part of his life. Like in the very beginning, like, I want you to go, leave your family, uh, everything you know, and go to this land you've never seen. And Abraham's warning, he's like, how is this? Don't worry, I'll tell you about it later. And then he gets to the land, and it's full of enemies, Canaanites, bad people, right? And he's like, uh, he shows up, and God says, hey, I'm going to give you all this land. You are gonna, your family is going to reign over this land and own this land and live in this land. He's like, how is that going to work out? Don't worry, I'll tell you about it later. And then he looks at his 90-year-old wife, and yeah, she's going to have a baby. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? How is that? Don't worry. Tell you about it later. And it goes on and on again to the point now he's like, look, your world is going to be blessed by your offspring, but I want you to kill your only son. What? Yeah, go sacrifice him. How is that going to... I, I, I don't see the bridge there. Don't worry. I'll tell you about it later. Did you know that's how God often works? Maybe you haven't had that experience, but... I'm convinced that this is the kind of faith that's necessary in following Christ. Remember when he called his disciples, you can read it in Mark chapter 1 and the other Gospels as well, and he came and you notice what Jesus doesn't say? He says, come follow me. End of call. He didn't say, hey, come follow me. By the way, for the next three years, uh, we're going to wander the countryside and uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll get food and stuff. Let me be a little kid, a little sack lunch. I'll make it really big. Don't worry about it. We're going to be relatively homeless. There's going to be people that get healed and stuff. It'll be really cool. Now, mind you, there's a few religious people that are going to hate your guts. And there's some Gentiles that will too. But there'll be a lot, a lot that really like us. And at the end, actually, you're all going to flee from me because um, I'm actually going to be crucified by the people I've come to save. Ready? That's not what he said. And I bet they were somewhat grateful that he didn't because probably no one would have followed at that point. Right? But that's the kind of faith. God says, follow me. Trust me. It's like a father to his child, right? The question that I cannot bear to hear only because I hear it an infinite number of times from my children when they're asked to do something is why. Why? Because in their minds, they want, okay, 
you can give me a valid reason for why I should accomplish this task. I think I could be agreeable to it. All right? But the truth is, I hate the why question, because all that is is like, hmm, I don't know if I trust you. And so my response often is, do you trust me? Not with this, you know, but do you trust me? The question I think is fair to ask, why this test, though? Why this question? Why this command? Out of all things God could have asked Abraham, he could have been asked to do a lot of difficult things, but this is like, this is a big one. And without doubt, there's a larger story at work here. We can never forget that, that Genesis is just one chapter in a much larger story of God that began before creation and will end afterwards. That Genesis 22 foreshadows in the most explicit of ways the sacrifice of Christ, but there's other lessons to be learned here. I wonder if Isaac, his only son Isaac, had perhaps become too important to Abraham. The text doesn't state this, but, but what if Isaac represents the many gifts that, that God gives us through His grace? The Bible does say in James that all good gifts are from God, and we have many good gifts in our life, jobs and relationships and wealth and achievements and different opportunities and, and even families. But very often and too often, these gifts actually become gods to compete for supremacy in our lives. Gods that we find our identity in and our value in. Gods that we're afraid to lose. And sometimes I'm convinced as we consider whether Isaac has become too important to Abraham, I'm convinced that we need to let go of God's gifts at times in order to take hold of God Himself. We can do a lot with God's gifts, but you know what? We can do without God's gifts, and we cannot do without God. I'm reminded as Job, we sang that song. After losing his family and losing his wealth in the first chapter of Job, in pain, he cries out, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now you see with Abraham, there's, there's no record of Abraham questioning. There's no arguing. There's no even delaying in his obedience. There is a sense, however, I think, as you begin to read the narrative, that Abraham is spending a quite a bit of time, and, and rightly so, contemplating what he's about to do. You'll notice he gets up early. Here's God's command, gets up early, saddles his own donkey, loads up whatever supplies he's going to need, says he cuts wood for the offering. Now, you think about this idea, Abraham being 120 years old, many servants, there are many people who could have done these tasks for Abraham, but he did them himself. And in doing so, I imagine he's not delaying, but as he's chopping that wood, thinking about what's about to happen. Getting personally involved in what's about to happen. Not distancing himself from it, but still contemplating. Saddles his own donkey. 
And the beauty of this, or maybe the difficulty of this for all of us, is that as he's pondering, as he's thinking, as he's contemplating this command of the Lord that is just unimaginably difficult, he's obeying. As he's contemplating and trying to figure out what God is doing, he is not doing that passively, he is doing it actively. He is obeying, he is moving continually in obedience as he struggles. He begins the journey, which takes three days. I imagine that was a very long three days. Then he arrives at a place called Moriah, where scholars believe that's where the temple will one day be built and sacrifices will be made. And some would argue the very hill that they sacrifice or attempt to sacrifice Isaac on is the very hill Christ himself died. It's a larger story going on here. When Abraham and his men arrive at the mountain and he sees the actual hill that they're going to go on, he tells them, I'm the boy, you stay here, we're going to go over there to worship, and then we will come again to you. And Abraham knows that he's going to sacrifice his son. He's the only one that knows. And he describes his obedience as worship. Sacrifice his son as, as worship. Actions intended to give God glory and honor and praise. We wrongly view worship as, as just merely practicing religious rituals. We gather together for worship and we sing and we take sacraments and, and those are all glorious things. But I think sometimes we ignore passages like Romans 12 that tell us that living according to God's Word is our greatest act of worship. That simple, plain, old-fashioned obedience ascribes God glory, gives Him praise. Not amazing mission trips, not Bible studies, not singing together, but just good old-fashioned obedience. That is worship. We know that some time has passed between when Isaac was weaned, which at the max was five years old. The covenant happened, and then this time it said, you know, after these things. He's at least five years old. Some would argue he's 25, 30 years old. That much time has passed. They argue that because Abraham, as they prepare, lay a bunch of wood. So I looked at my five-year-old son, Hudson. Got his tie on today. looked very cute. I imagine putting a pile of wood enough to burn a body on top of him. I say, I don't think that is probably possible. So I know he's older than five. More than likely, he's, he's 15, 25, someone there, a young man. That becomes very important. Abraham takes fire with him, right? Not matches, just a stick, flaming stick probably. They take the wood and they start up the mountain. And as they summit the mountain, Isaac is not a dummy. Looks around. Oh, Dad, 120 years old, starting to get forgetful. You know, we got the wood, Dad. We got the fire, Dad. Kind of forgot something big. Where's the lamb? He hasn't told Isaac what's happening. He's told him they're going to worship God. He's told him they're going to worship God. It's interesting. Abraham responds by saying, God will provide. And 
multiple times in this passage, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, uh, Abraham and Isaac is said, go there together. They both go together. And I would argue that this is a test not just for Abraham, but also for Isaac. This is a son watching his father's faith work itself out, trusting God, worshiping God. And it's not just a faith of sentiment. It's not just a faith of words. It's a faith in real action and real decisions. And it seems to have its effect because Abraham builds the altar and then he binds his son. Now, there's no like little parenthetical in there like Abraham built the altar. Hey, Isaac, could you finish that last stone? Thanks. Right? Knocks him out. Didn't happen. It wasn't like, okay, now I can put you up there. Right? That's not what's implied. What's implied is that, okay, I'm going to bind you now. What? Why? But he trusts. And he lays them on top of the wood, on top of the altar. You have to imagine, what is Isaac thinking at this point? Is he thinking like, oh, this isn't really going to happen? Is he looking to his father's eyes and just saying, I trust you? Is he watching his father's faith work out in doing something that God's told me to do this? What's Isaac thinking? And then you have to ask yourself, what's Abraham thinking? Right? Is he gets up there, he's like, all right, here we go. Your time now, Lord. Really going to do this. I'm obeying you. You know, when you count down for your kids, right? All right, you got three, two, one and a half, one and three. You know, you want to give him more time. Is he like that? Come on, Lord. And I just like, come on, Lord, come on. I'm really going to do it. What's Abraham thinking? Well, the Bible tells us, actually, what Abraham's thinking in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And it says that he considered, he, here's what he's thinking, he thought that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham, remember, this is not just slaughter Isaac, this is burn Isaac. Abraham believed that God could, in order to fulfill his promises, resurrect his son from a pile of ash That's the kind of faith he demonstrated. He obeyed God's Word when it was most difficult to do because he believed God has a future promise. I don't know how he's going to do it. This is a possibility. I'm going to trust and obey. The truth is, I don't think me personally, maybe you're different, but I think we struggle to trust in God's promises to that extent. We hold on. Oh, I can't let this go because it will just be, it'll burn up. I'll lose it. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to protect it. And God said, no, let it go. Oh, I know you promise, but I need to hold it tight. Abraham trusts, and in many ways, as James says, his faith is completed. I'm convinced, and we have to be careful in saying this, but 
from the story of Abraham, we see that God fully provided when Abraham fully surrendered. God fully provided when Abraham fully surrendered. And that was an attitude. He didn't actually slaughter his son. It was God seeing his heart. God seeing his mind. God knowing exactly what Abraham was going to do. And as Abraham fully surrendered what was most important in his life, what was most special in his life, God provided. When he had surrendered, we know he believed and we know he believed because he acted. He did something. He moved. He didn't just think. Interestingly, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James use Abraham as an example of faith. And they use him a little bit differently. And because they use him a little bit differently, people have kind of pit them against one another when they actually should be read together to get a full picture of what we're talking about. In the letter to the Romans, Paul famously says, faith is counted as righteousness. Faith alone. And then in the epistle of James, we read, faith without works is dead. Faith alone. Faith with works. And you go, which one? In Romans chapter 4, Paul writes, speaking about Abraham, speaking about this very incident in verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted as righteousness, Paul says. But then James says in the second chapter of James, verse 21, you see, speaking of Abraham, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What we see, as Martin Luther so aptly said, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith that saves is never alone. The only reason we know Abraham was a man of faith is because he fully surrendered. And the only reason we know he fully surrendered is because he actually acted in obedience. And God intervened and God spared, but he moved. His faith was completed. The angel of the Lord, by grace, stops Abraham and says, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Don't touch him. And he says this, now I know you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son from me. Abraham's faith demonstrated more than anything that he feared God more than anything. It was not a faith of just affirmation of good intentions. It was a faith of obedience and action. By faith, he fully intended and was in the act of sacrificing his son to the Lord whom he feared. And the truth is, if we are unwilling to sacrifice and surrender our best to the Lord, then we truly do not fear the Lord. And by that, I simply mean we don't adore Him. We don't revere Him. We don't trust Him more than anything. And if we don't fear the Lord, 
we really should not expect the Lord to provide His blessing for us. More times than I really can count, and you can do a little concordance search if you want, as you read the Psalms, the songs of God, the songs of God's people, the phrase, blessed is He who fears the Lord. Blessed is He who fears the Lord, who reveres the Lord, who trusts the Lord, who adores the Lord. Without doubt, Abraham was relieved by what happened. And he wasn't just rejoicing because his son was saved. In many ways, he was rejoicing about what he had been taught, particularly about substitution. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to some religious leaders about Abraham, and he gets them in big trouble to the point where they try to kill him. But he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I'm convinced that Jesus is talking about this moment where Abraham was shown exactly how the salvation of man would be accomplished. It would be accomplished through a substitution of a lamb. And as the Israelites read this story that Moses had written down for them, they would begin to understand their sacrificial system in a, in a very rich way. The law of God had been given. They were to sacrifice lambs regularly for their sins and they would sacrifice thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs to atone for their sins, but they would also be looking for the substitute. Like Isaac, they would perpetually be asking year after year, every time they went to the temple, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And he would eventually arrive when the Son of God took on human flesh and the man Jesus Christ the man whom John the Baptist, as he began to walk, said, there, there is the Lamb. The Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice his son. Only asked to sacrifice his son. Our father actually sacrificed his son. Jesus is the, the greater son, the greater Isaac, if you will, who willingly, not reluctantly, he didn't fight it, he willingly laid himself upon the altar. He willingly exposed himself to the hands and the abuse of men he created. Hands he created. Tongues that mocked him that he created to be a substitute. For our sins. According to Isaiah 53, he was killed by his father. Yes, he was killed by the Romans. Yes, he was delivered by the Jews. But it says in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. Sounds very much like the promise of Abraham. Those who would believe. When he saw those who would believe like Abraham... He rejoiced, said he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus became our substitute in life and in death. He lived the life that we never could have, though we tried. And he died the death that we deserve for our sins. And God the Father, our Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, 
offered Him up as a sacrifice for our sins. And because He has sacrificed everything He had to give for us, we, in response, will give something, and dare I say, I pray our everything to Him. We'll close with a slight or small observation at the end of this passage. You see, after Abimelech, or right prior to Abimelech making a covenant with Abraham, he said something to Abraham that we kind of read over. He came to Abraham and said, Oh, you're one that God is with. You clearly are a man whom God loves. And I think it would have been easy for Abraham to rest in that. To live out his faith through a label alone. I'm chosen. I'm blessed. I am God's people. And that became a problem for the Jews when Jesus arrived. But the truth is, God wanted Abraham to do much more than just identify with him. Just say that he was part of God's family. He wanted him to fully trust him and to obey him. And Jesus wants us to do more than just say we are Christians. And just attach that label. He didn't say, hey guys, follow me. Why don't you call yourselves, call yourselves Christians? Sound good? And I don't really care what you do. Um, you can just identify with me and, and tell people that you're Christians. The fullness of faith comes through living a life like Jesus. And a life like Jesus, following Jesus, is sacrifice. True worship, I believe, true faith is empty apart from obedient action. And so the question before us all is what is God asking us to put on the altar? What is He asking us to put on the altar as an act of worship to Him? What comfort? What person? What pleasure? What gift? What good thing? What relationship? What opportunity? has perhaps become too important to you. Perhaps it's made your eyes and your ears and your life so full that you at this point have no room for God. At different times, we probably all have something different. But I think it's an important question to ask often. And if we're unwilling to ask, Lord, what is it I must sacrifice now? What is it I must put on the altar now? I'm not sure we can ever truly worship God. Paul describes our physical actions in the world in Romans 12 as living sacrifices, as our spiritual worship. And the question is, what do we need to put on the altar? What thing do we need to actively put on the altar and even allow to die and trust that even if it becomes ash, God will raise it up to something beautiful. Now, without doubt, salvation is not earned. Salvation is by grace, through faith. But I do believe that our faithfulness in Christ is rewarded. And the last couple verses of this passage reveal that. The reward of faith is not what the world might offer. Prosperity, freedom from suffering, That'd be a good one. 
or approval. On the contrary, faithfulness offers those things that which that can be found on earth that have to be given from God. When we faithfully give God our best, He provides that which only He can give. At the end of verse 20 again, that same phrase, now after these things, pops up. And it says, Abraham gets three different gifts. Right before that is the first gift. It's the gift of peace. The angel reminds him, he says, he speaks a second time and says, I am surely going to bless you now. I'm going to fulfill everything that I said, guaranteed, expect it. I don't care how many times you've screwed up, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. Man, what peace that must bring him. Oh. But he also is rewarded with joy. He gets news about his family he hasn't heard of since he left. It's a weird thing. You know, it's a report. Like, why, why this news? Well, it's just joyful to hear my family. They're growing. They're having kids. That's amazing. But in that joy, there's one other thing. It's the gift of hope. It's the hope that Isaac will find a wife. A tangible promise that not only have I saved Isaac, I'm going to fulfill it all, and you'll have a wife, which in the next chapter, two chapters, you will see. He says, go back to my family and find Isaac a wife. Faith, I believe, brings peace from our past, and it brings joy in the present, and it brings hope for the future. And who wouldn't want that? I know, as Aaron talked about in the very beginning, like, you know, sometimes, like, I've had a little more money, a little more power. Like, you know what? I guarantee you, if I could say, look, let me just give you peace. True contentment. That your past doesn't define you. That your mistakes won't creep up on you. Peace that the Lord truly forgives and wants to bless you. Joy and hope in Christ. You all sign up. That is the promise of faith in Christ. And so I compel all of us, as we come to the table this morning, and we celebrate His life and death, the fact that He laid Himself on the altar for us, that we might walk in the newness of life with Him. That's what we celebrate. And for some of us, you just need to come and be reminded of that. And come and, and reminded of the forgiveness and the love that God has for you. And for others, man, he's saying, look, this thing's way too important. You need to leave it up here. Leave it at the altar and enjoy the blessing of God himself and not just his gifts. Let's pray.